good morning, everyone. Um, it's a yeah, it's a joy and a, a privilege to be uh, to be speaking uh, this morning. So, uh, thank you. Um, we're going to be in in Acts uh, chapter one um, this morning. Um, Acts chapter one. If you want to to turn there, and if you do, I would really encourage you to have a, a Bible in front of you um, so you can follow along. Um, just as we're going to be working our way through the first 11 verses of, of Acts chapter 1. Um, and so it will be really helpful for you uh, to have a, a Bible in front of you, whether that's in physical form or on your phone or some other device. But that's where we'll be this morning. Parting words are important. In the world of cinema, parting words are important. For example, in the movie Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark and an engineer called Yinsen are being held captive. But while they're prisoners, Yinsen is able to manufacture the first infamous Iron Man suit for Tony. And this pursuit eventually costs him his life. And he sacrifices himself so that Tony, Iron Man, can, can go free and go on to his superhero adventures. Um, and as he is dying, Tony says, thank you for saving me. And Yinsen responds with his parting words, don't waste it. Don't waste your life. The reason I included that is because, well, because it's a great quote, but also that's at the beginning of the movie. So I don't think I've spoiled it there. You can still watch it then and enjoy it. Um, But in the world of cinema, parting words are important. And in our own lives, parting words are important. We treasure and reflect upon the last words that we hear from a loved one. Parting words are important. And in the Bible, parting words are important. Just three examples from, from the Old Testament that I'll just mention. We, won't, we don't have time to go into them. But in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's prophecy over his sons. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses' final blessing over uh, on, on Israel. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, David's instruction to Solomon. And so in each of these examples, something important is being communicated. Whether it's prophetic in the case of Jacob, blessing in the case of Moses, instruction in the case of David, parting words are important, and the importance of these words are heightened by their being parting words. But in each of these instances, and indeed instances that you might recall as parting words, they're tinged with sadness more than a tinge, in fact. Because while parting words can be comforting, comforting, memorable, and precious to us, they do emphasize the reality of death. Well, this morning, we're going to think about some totally unique parting words. Um, and that's where we come to Acts 1. So look with me at the first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday, we remembered our Lord's triumphant resurrection from the dead. And after he rose, he appeared to his disciples. He showed them his nail-pierced hands and feet. He ate with them. He proved that he was not just a figment of their imagination or some kind of spirit, but that he had truly risen from the dead, undergoing a bodily resurrection. And Luke records all of this in his gospel in chapter 24. But he also, we also see a summary, a summary of it here in the first three verses. Don't we look again at those first three verses? In the first book of Theophilus, that is Luke talking about his gospel. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days proving to his disciples that he was alive and teaching them about the kingdom of God until, verse 2, the day that he was taken up. And in these 11 verses, we read the account of Jesus' ascension, his ascension back to the Father after his resurrection. But before he ascended back to his Father, he left his apostles with some parting words. And this is where we see the total uniqueness of these parting words. As the crucified and risen Jesus, after proving his resurrection to his disciples, speaks to, his, speaks to them before ascending to heaven. And these words are not overshadowed by the pain of death, because Christ has defeated death. And these words are of huge significance, not just for the apostles, but for us today, his followers, the church. And so this morning, we're going to work our way through this passage, fo- focusing especially on Jesus' parting words because they give us insight into the global mission of the triune God. That's kind of the the title of this sermon, I guess, if you are taking notes. The global mission of the triune God. And we're going to look at it in four sections. Firstly, the prologue to Jesus' parting words, which is the announcement of the imminent coming of the Spirit. Secondly, the apostles' ignorant response. Thirdly, a window into the Trinitarian mission, and finally, our response to Jesus' parting words. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's begin with the prologue, the announcement of the imminent coming of the Spirit. So this prologue here in verse 4, we see is all about the Spirit. This is not the first time that Jesus had spoken to his followers about the Spirit. We see in, in John chapter 16, He told him that unless he goes away, that is, unless he ascends, the Spirit would not come. 
And he actually says that it is to their advantage that he would go away so that the Spirit would come. And so the disciples had at least some idea of what Jesus, that, that Jesus would go away and that the Spirit would come and at least some idea of what the Spirit would do. Well, now here in Acts 1, Jesus has gone to the cross, he's risen, and he speaks to his disciples about the Spirit once again. And he begins by telling them to wait in Jerusalem, that where Jesus' death and resurrection had taken place, for the promise of the Father. Do you see that in verse 4? The promise of the Father. Well, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, John 16 was not the first time that God had promised that the Spirit would come. If you flip over your Bibles one page um, to Acts chapter 2, you'll see Peter quoting from the prophet Joel. You see, a short time after this incredible interaction between Jesus and his apostles, the Spirit did indeed come, as Jesus had said it would, at Pentecost, enabling the apostles to speak in various tongues. And to explain what was happening, Peter addressed the crowd. Look at chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. God had promised through the prophet Joel that the, the Spirit would come. So do you see there, we have an Old Testament promise from the Father in Joel chapter 2, New Testament promise, Acts chapter, or sorry, John chapter 16, the Father and the Son promising that the Spirit would come. And in each, in each of these foretellings, we see promises of what the Spirit would do. In Joel, we've just read, the Spirit will cause people to prophesy, have visions and dreams, in John chapter 16, we read that the Spirit will convict and he will guide. But there is some degree of mystery here, certainly to the disciples, as we'll see in a minute. And I wonder if you feel that. I wonder if you aren't as clear on who the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is, as you are the Father or the Son. I wonder if you'd feel slightly more uneasy explaining what the, who the Spirit is or what he does in comparison to the Father or the Son. Well, firstly, let me point you to a sermon from the 11th of October, 2021, from our Head, Heart, Hands series, as Drew unpacked for us uh, who the Spirit is and what he does. You can listen to that on the church. You can access that on the church website. Or additionally, if you're into Christian rap, you could listen to The Holy Spirit by Shai Lin, which is really, honestly, really good and really only three minutes compared to the sermon, which is maybe half an hour. Um, but secondly, if you feel that way about the Spirit, that you're not quite as, as clear on who he is or what he does, you're in good company because the disciples here seem to misunderstand why the Spirit was to come. Even despite these two foretellings from Joel chapter 2, John chapter 16. And that's where we come to our second point, the apostles' ignorance. Look at, look at uh, verse 6. So Jesus has just told them to wait in Jerusalem um, because the Spirit would come there, it would baptize them. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
This is not a misunderstanding of, of who Jesus is, but it is a misunderstanding of the coming of the Spirit and of the mission of the triune God. Jesus had gone to the cross. He'd risen from the grave. He'd appeared to his apostles, speaking about the kingdom of God. He told them they're going to be baptized by the Spirit not many days from now. And they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? How is this an understanding, a misunderstanding of the purpose of the coming Spirit and therefore the mission of the triune God? Well, in short, it is far too narrow a view. Let me explain. As we know, Israel was under Roman occupation. We've just thought about how it was Pilate, a Roman, who sentenced Jesus to death. It was Roman soldiers who crucified him. Romans made life hard for the Jews, and they longed for liberation from Roman rule. And when Jesus came on the scene, they thought, here is someone who is going to free us from the Romans. That's certainly what Peter thought. And in Mark chapter 8, we we read that Peter rightly confesses Jesus as the Messiah. But when Jesus goes on to foretell his his death and resurrection, Peter rebukes him. And listen to how Jesus responds. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think that very thing that happened in Mark 8 happens here in, in Acts 1. You see, Jesus, again, is telling his followers about a vital part of the mission of God this time the coming of the Spirit. In Mark, it was Jesus' death and resurrection. And his followers respond with earthly human thinking rather than heavenly, godly thinking. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, you can't die. You can't, you're the Messiah. How can you die? A misunderstanding. Again, the apostles ask Jesus when he tells them about the Spirit, are you this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is ignorance. So in verse 4, Jesus commands the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes, reminding them of the Father's promise and of his own reminder of the gift of the Spirit. But the apostles don't grasp the coming of the Spirit, and therefore they misunderstand the mission of the triune God. They're thinking far too narrowly, just as Peter was in Mark chapter 8. Because in both cases with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, God had a far greater, bigger, more glorious plan than the apostles could have even imagined. And so how does Jesus respond to their ignorance? Well, by giving them a window into the global mission of the triune God. That's our third point. A window into the global mission of the triune God and about telling them about their role in it. We've considered the prologue, Jesus' announcement of the imminent coming of the spirits. We've seen the apostles' ignorance, how they misunderstand the coming of the spirits and therefore the mission of the triune God. And now on to our third point. We get a window into the Trinitarian mission. A window into the Trinitarian mission. Let's read from verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1. So Jesus responding to the question of the apostles. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Do you notice in these two verses, seven and eight, that the, the Trinity is mentioned, Father, Son, and Spirit? <clears throat> and we actually see that they're at work in different ways in this global mission. So we're going to look at them one by one, um, the three members of the Trinity and their role in this global mission. Firstly, the Father. Jesus says to his apostles, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What does this mean? Remember the question that the apostles asked, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is saying here that it is the Father's prerogative to fix times or seasons, and it is actually not any of their business. Ultimately, he's talking about the end times and the day of judgment. Now, over the years, there have been many predictions about when the end will come. And one of the more recent ones um, predicted that the the end of the world would come in 2012. And this was based on the end of an ancient Mesoamerican long count calendar, which ran out in December 2012. And there was even a movie made about it called 2012. But these predictions are foolish. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. God's global mission will culminate at the end of time on a day that the Father has fixed by his own authority, when all God's people will be raised to new life with him for all eternity. So don't get swept up in end of the world apocalyptic predictions. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So what is the Father's role in this global mission as we see in Acts 1? He has, by his own authority, fixed the day that he will bring this age to an end. What of of the Spirit then? What is the Spirit's role in this global mission? Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word that stands out to me here is power. Now, when Jesus was talking about the Spirit in John 16, or, in, or when we see, read in Joel 2, we don't read the word power. We don't, we don't hear about the power of the Spirit. So what does it mean that the apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them? Well, if you look at the second half of verse 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus seems to be talking, equating the the Spirit's power here with the witnessing of his followers. The Spirit empowers the apostles to be witnesses of what God has done. So that is the work. What is the work of the Spirit in in the global mission of the Triune God? It is to empower God's people to witness about what he has done in Christ. And we see this power at Pentecost, don't we? Think about Peter, a rough Galilean fisherman, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who rebuked Jesus for saying he would go to the cross, the one who was in this, in this group that was asking about, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And then think about him at Pentecost, having been filled with the Spirit, standing before a crowd of thousands, proclaiming the gospel, with great boldness. And read that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Was that because Peter said all the right words? Or was that because he was a great speaker? 
No. It was because the Spirit had come in power and made effective his message. Albert Moeller says this, our only hope to see lives changed by the gospel is to faithfully proclaim God's word and then trust God's spirit to make our proclamation effective. Brothers and sisters, don't you know that this same spirit spirit has been given to you? Romans 8 verse 9 says, you whoever are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Positively, that is, anyone who belongs to Christ has the spirit of Christ. Does that not change the way that we think about evangelism? It is not about how eloquent in speech you are or about how clever an argument you can weave. The Holy Spirit empowers you and makes makes effective your sharing of the gospel. That is what changes people. Therefore, as you seek to bear witness to Jesus in school, in work, in our neighborhoods, our gyms, our homes, go in reliance on the Spirit, crying out to God that he would make effective your sharing of the gospel. So what is the role of the Spirit in the global mission of the triune God, as we see in Acts 1, to empower God's people to bear witness to Jesus and to make effective their proclamation of the gospel? Finally, the Son. I thought about how the Father has fixed the date by his own authority. The Spirit empowers God's people. What does the Son do? In Acts 1, well, he commissions. The Son commissions. Now, just to be clear, this morning we're looking at the global mission of the Triune God as seen in Acts 1. Because, of course, without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the mission fails. But we're just looking at at, at what are the roles of the Trinity in Acts 1 in this this global mission. Well, for Jesus, for the Son, it is to commission, to send out, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus sends out his apostles to be his witnesses. And we use that word quite regularly, don't we, when we talk about evangelism, um, talk about being a good witness, But what does Jesus mean here when he says, you will be my witnesses? Well, I think that Luke 24 can help us. And if you flick back a few pages in your Bible, um, we can see in the hard red backs, it's page 1062. I'll read here from, from verse 45. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their mind so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So similar to Acts 1, isn't it? That commission. The suffering and resurrection of Jesus, the commission to go to all nations. Verse 48, you're witnesses of these things. And the command to go and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations after the Spirit has come in power. So what does it mean 
according to Luke 24, to be Jesus' witness. It means to proclaim his death and resurrection and to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. And that is exactly what we see happen in the rest of the book of Acts. If you go through, you'll see the apostles having been clothed with power from on high from the Spirit, and they go in that power and they preach that Jesus Christ died, that he rose, and that forgiveness of sins is available in his name. We don't have time to go through all the um, passages, but if you're taking notes here, just are some that you can look up later. Chapter 2, verse 32, 3, 15, 5, 32:10:39, 13:31. All of these references, we see Peter and Paul proclaiming that they are witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus and that forgiveness of sins is available through faith in his name. That's what it looks like to be a witness of Jesus. But being a witness of Jesus was not just the job of those who had seen, like Peter, the risen Jesus who had encountered him. It is the job of the church until the end of the age, as Jesus says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, verse 20. And so that includes us. We are included in this commission. We sang earlier, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. The psalmist says, one generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What work is there more wonderful or what act mightier than Jesus' resurrection from the dead? That is our job as we witness for Jesus to proclaim that he died and that he rose and to preach that there is forgiveness of sins in his name. And so the application for us, this message has to be central to our evangelism, to our witness. This was the message of the apostles in the first century. It must be ours too today. So what does it mean to be a witness of Jesus? Sorry, that is what it means to be a witness of Jesus. But who were the apostles to witness to? We'll turn back to Acts 1 if you haven't already and look with me at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A little practical exercise for you. If you have, if you have access to one of the red hardbacks, please pick one up um, or you can share it with someone beside you. Turn to the very back page, the, back, the inside cover, and you'll see, this, you'll see this map here. It's entitled Paul's Missionary Journeys. And in the bottom right corner, you'll see in bold Jerusalem down here. And this is where we've just seen, this, this is where the, the witness was to begin of the apostles, wasn't it? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And where's next? In, in old Judea. So you see just above Jerusalem there, Joppa and Jericho. That's part of Judea and just south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of, of Judea. And then where's next? In Samaria, you can see that just above Jericho. We're a very small part of, the, part of the map here, aren't we? Just in this bottom right corner. But this is where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria. And where's next? To the end of the earth. Now, we only have here that we can only see in and around the Mediterranean Sea. But look at the incredible spread of the gospel in the first century. Look at those lines that have been drawn for us to see where Paul and the apostles took the gospel all the way to Rome. 
as I said, that's only the Mediterranean. We, Jesus has said that the, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth, as Christine prayed earlier on. And the, the King James, I think, is really helpful in, this, in the translation of this verse. It says, ye shall be my witnesses unto the uttermost part of the earth, or the NASV, as far as the remotest part of the earth. The mission of the triune God is global to the end of the earth. And from that first century, Christianity has spread around the globe to every continent. Christ has been building his church and the gates of hell have not stood against it and they will not. However, according to the International Mission Board, 59% of the world today is considered unreached. Meaning Jesus is largely unknown among 4.7 billion people. 4.7 billion people. The end of the earth does not have gospel witness. So what are, what are we to do? Well, firstly, let's lift our eyes beyond the four walls of this church and beyond the Braniel, beyond Belfast, beyond Northern Ireland. And let's recognize the global mission of our triune God. And then let's pray. We've prayed for the Tehama people, an unreached people group in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. We've prayed for the Eastern Pashtun people in Afghanistan. We've prayed for John and Berita Timothy as they witness to the people of Japan. But there is no people group, no nation that you could adopt praying for that is outside the remit of this commission. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Please pray for this global mission. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. So that is the global mission of the triune God as seen in Acts 1. The Father fixes the time when the end will come. The Spirit empowers God's people and makes effective their proclamation of the gospel and the Son commissions them to be witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. But do you see how the global mission of the triune God involves you? After the apostles ask their misguided question, Jesus responds, it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You have a part to play in the global mission of the triune God, commissioned by the Son, in the power of the Spirit, in the knowledge of the Father's authority. So as we close, let me ask, in our final point, what will you do with Jesus' parting words? This commission was, was Jesus' parting message to his disciples. We thought about the, at the beginning about the importance of parting words, looking at those Old Testament examples. And here we have Jesus' parting words. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Before, this is, we see Jesus' parting words, and then he commissions his apostles, and then he ascends. He leaves them, he departs. But before I ask you what will you do with Jesus' parting words, let's look at how the apostles respond. Look at verses 10 and 11. What did they do with Jesus' parting words? Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, um, as as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Well, how do the apostles respond to Jesus' parting words? What do they do? Well, nothing at first. And while they were gazing into heaven, they're just standing there. Now, you may think I'm being a little harsh on the apostles here, but look at the rest of verse 10 and 11. Angels come and interrupt this dazed state that they appeared to be in. Now, angels don't regularly appear to people in the New Testament, and when they do, it's usually to relay an important message. Think of Mary, think of the shepherds, think of the women at the tomb. And so I think then, with with that knowledge, we can conclude that the fact that this instance requires an angelic visit, we can conclude that the, their message is quite important. And so with that in mind, look again at verse 11. Look at, the, look at what the angels say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see how the angels rebuke inactivity? They rebuke inactivity. Jesus had just corrected the apostles' nationalistic thinking of the kingdom of God and had commissioned them to play their part in God's global mission before ascending into heaven, and they hesitate. And this hesitation warrants rebuke. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Think of the shepherds as Luke records in the second chapter of his gospel. An angel appeared to them, telling them of Christ's birth before a heavenly host appeared, praising God. And how did they respond? Did they stand waiting for the heavenly host to reappear? Luke tells us, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. The apostles could learn a thing or two from the shepherds here. But before we come down too harshly on the apostles, how often do we hesitate to obey Christ in carrying out the role that he has given us as his witnesses? How often are we hesitant to get on with the job that we have been given? I wonder, do you need to hear that angelic rebuke this morning? Secondly, what do the angels do? Well, they dispel confusion about the second coming. Look at the second half of verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why did, why did they need to say this? Well, it seems as if the, the apostles were, in a sense, overly concerned with the second coming or with heaven. Now, of course, it's not wrong to meditate on the glory of Jesus' second coming or to think about the joy of heaven. But what we see here is that the angels assure the apostles of the nature of the second coming so that they can get on with the job that Christ has given them as his witnesses. We read that the Lord's return will be the same as his ascension and that it will be visible, it will be personal. But the apostles don't need to worry about missing it. It's constantly looking up to the sky, waiting. They don't need to do that. Because Jesus says of his return, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That is why the angels reassure them. He is coming back in the same way he has ascended. So they don't need to be stargazers, as John Stott says. Ultimately, the message of the angels was this. 
What are you doing staring into the sky? Yes, Jesus has ascended to heaven, but he is coming back and all will see him when he does. In the meantime, he has given you a job to do. Get on with it. Parting words are important. Jesus' parting words are important. What will you do with them this morning? Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit has a global mission, a glorious mission, which we know will succeed. Listen to the new song sung in heaven to the Lamb recorded for us in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to your God, and they shall reign on the earth. Mission accomplished. And until we hear that song with our own ears, we have been invited to play our part in this global mission. Well, let's come before God in prayer and ask for his help in this mission. O Father, who sustained them, O Spirit, who inspired, Saviour, whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired, from cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thine errand send us, to labor for thy sake. Amen.